You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. What am I? What's the relationship between the thoughts in my mind and the brain in my head? Is my mind stuff different from my brain stuff? Or is there something special about mental activity that's not crammed into my cranium? Something else that makes me human? Something non-brain? Something non-physical? These questions compose the mind-body problem which has enticed philosophers for centuries, beguiled me for decades, and touches all we know and do as human beings. I thought that getting a doctorate in brain research would help me figure it out. Did it? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and this is Closer to Truth. To frame the mind-body problem, I go right to John Searle, longtime professor of philosophy at Berkeley. I've met John before and love how he thinks. John critiques both standard solutions, materialism and dualism. We meet in his rustic home. John, the mind-body problem, what is the relationship between what I think is my mind and what I know is my brain? Let's define it, let's let's discuss its history, and what some of the solutions supposedly are. Okay, the two broad schemes that attract most people are either dualism, uh, the mind is something totally different from the the body and the brain, or materialism that says there isn't anything extra, it all just reduces uh, to the brain. They're both trying to say something true, it's just they end up saying something false. And the trick is to try to preserve the true part. The materialist says, look, reality is ultimately physical particles and fields of force. That's right. But then the materialist denies the irreducibility and and existence of the mental. The dualist grants the irreducibility and existence of the mental, but then it says it's not part of the physical world. Uh, Most philosophers are materialists of some kind or another because they just think dualism fails. And for a long time, the most fashionable form of materialism was behaviorism. The idea, well, that's really all there is to having a mind is just behaving in a certain way. But the problem is nobody can ever be a behaviorist about himself. I mean, I can't think, oh, well, when I uh, pinch myself, the only thing that goes on is my verbal behavior (laughs) and the behavior of my body. I actually have a feeling. So behaviorism really is implausible, and, but its failure led to what a lot of people think is a more plausible view, and that's functionalism. Functionalism says, think of the mind not as some mysterious inner processes, but just think of it as a set of causal mechanisms that enables the body to function. So we have input stimulus, and then, unlike behaviorism, we then postulate, but there's something going on inside, and what goes on inside is a mechanism that produces outside behavior. And functionalism naturally leads to people to ask the question, 
what's the nature of the inner mechanism that produces the outward behavior. And this happened really, well, I guess in the, in the 60s and 70s, there was a wonderful a sense of a possibility when people realized, my God, we know the mechanism. It's a digital computer. The brain is a digital computer. The mind is just the program that happens to be running in the brain. The hardware doesn't Man. matter. Now, I, I, that view is preposterous. And there's a simple refutation, uh, which I gave years ago. It's called the Chinese room argument. And what it says is, look, if that were right, then I could have any cognitive capacity I don't have just by running the computer program for that cognitive capacity. I don't understand Chinese, but if you gave me questions in Chinese and I look up the program, what answers I'm supposed to give back and I could give back, all the same, I wouldn't understand Chinese, even if I did have the right behavior and the right input-output mechanism. So computer functionalism fails. Another one uh, is to say, well, maybe the mind exists all right, but it doesn't make any difference to our lives, and this is called epiphenomenalism. The wine is just a kind of a, a froth on the wave, and I cannot imagine being an epiphenomenalist. Think of it. You're forced to say no one in the history of the universe ever drank because he was thirsty or ate because he was hungry or behaved angrily because he felt angry. It's all a massive illusion. John, he, he, here's what I find astonishing. You can't have more extremes. What is it about consciousness that forces people to these extreme kinds of positions? Yes, well, the problem, what is it about uh, it? The problem with consciousness, the reason it makes it such a difficult problem in philosophy is two features. One is we don't know how to assimilate it to our overall scientific worldview. And that leads people to think, well, it doesn't exist. It's an illusion. Right, right, right. That's crazy. The second reason is we have this tradition that says our consciousness is not a part of the ordinary physical world. On the contrary, it's special. It's what makes me, me. We really don't know how the brain works. If we really had a full understanding of how the brain produces consciousness and where and how it's realized in the brain and how it functions causally, then I think this problem would disappear. We would no longer feel this ur urge to postulate that, that is something mysterious. John's position is clear. Consciousness is real but it is based entirely on the brain. And once we learn enough about the brain, we will know everything about consciousness. I know something about the brain, but I cannot yet imagine how knowing even a whole lot more about the brain can ever explain our inner sense of consciousness. The mind-body problem is so axial for human understanding, I'd like another perspective for framing it. I talk to Ned Block, who seeks the fundamental nature of mind. Longtime professor at MIT, Ned is now at NYU. The mind-body problem is the problem of what is the fundamental nature of the mind. Maybe the best way to see it is by way of an analogy. So, for example, we can ask what the fundamental nature of water is. It turns out it's um, a certain structure of hydrogen and oxygen mo uh, molecules, which is colloquially known as H2O, 
So it has a chemical nature. Water has a chemical nature. Some other things have different natures. So for example, uh, what, is, what makes an adding machine an adding machine? Um, it turns out it's a kind of function. So if we ask about the mind, what makes the mind a mind? It turns out there are different aspects of the mind. Some of them are like water. Some of them are like adding. Consciousness is like water. It has a biological essence. So the mind-body problem for consciousness is one where the question is, what is the biological nature of the mind? The mind-body problem for thought and other aspects of cognition turns out probably to be mainly functional. Um, it's a matter of how representations in the mind function so as to produce thinking. So the idea is, what is the fundamental nature of mind? Where you re what you're really asking is, what is it? In the same sense as you can ask, what, what is water? It turns out it's H2O. And so if you would say, the mind is the brain, in the yeah. same sense that water is H2O, you have arguably a complete answer to the question, and it's a full stop. Yeah. That's, that's identity. Yeah. The thing about identity is sometimes you, you need further explication to, to tell you how an identity could be true. Mm -hmm. So just to say that a, a phenomenal property like the property of what it is like to see something red is a certain brain property. We're, even if it's true, we're not going to be satisfied with that because we want to know how a mental property could be a brain property. Well, so, so what happened to, the, to the, the postulation of identity that the mind is equal to the brain? Um, the problem is the, you know, the, the, the problem of the explanatory gap, the problem of um, how it could be that the neural basis of a given phenomenal state is the neural basis of that state as opposed to some other state or some other phenomenal state or none at all. We don't understand that, and furthermore, we don't even see how we could understand it, and that is what causes the difficulty. What, what you're saying is not only don't we understand it, but we don't even see what could count as an explanation of that. That's right. Ned frames the mind-body problem scientifically, which favors some kind of identity between mind and brain. But then he admits having no clue as to what could even count as a solution. I like that. With all I know about the brain, I can imagine explaining expressions or results of consciousness, but not its inner sense or feeling. Some say I'm looking in the wrong direction. Traditionally, almost everyone assumed that human beings had a non-physical soul. The soul was the real you, a position most philosophers now reject. Is there a modern defense of the soul? I visit J.P. Moreland, an unabashed Christian philosopher at Biola University in Los Angeles. J.P. I have seen over the past few decades a migration away from the traditional belief in the immortality of the soul, even among Christian philosophers. What do you make of that? I think a lot of it's sociological. I think we live in a day uh, where scientism is the default position by a lot of people. That's the idea that science and science alone can give us answers to our questions about reality. 
And I think it's a big mistake uh, to advance that view. So you believe that there is an immortal soul? Yes, and I don't think the issue is scientific. Uh, the fundamental questions about the nature of consciousness and whether there is a soul are just not scientific questions. They're questions like, what exactly is a thought? What is a semantic meaning? And in fact, there hasn't been a single discovery in neuroscience or any other branch of science that a dualist, that is one who believes in the soul and consciousness, could not easily accommodate within his theory. Now, what is the difference between a so-called property dualist and a substance dualist, which I suspect you are? A property dualist says that consciousness is different than the properties of the brain, but the brain is what has consciousness. A substance dualist agrees that consciousness isn't physical and the container of consciousness is not the brain, it's the self or the ego or the soul. Now you might ask, well, how do we know consciousness is different from a brain state? Now here's basically how we know it. There are things true of conscious states that aren't true of physical states, so they can't be the same thing. Thoughts are either true or false, but no brain state is either true or false. Uh, again, a thought can't be located closer to my left ear or my right ear, but the brain state that's going on while I'm having a thought is located in a region of the brain. It has a shape and a size, but the thought itself doesn't. Thoughts have intentionality. They're of things, but no material state of the brain is of anything. One more example. There is a what it is like to be conscious. There is a what it's like to feel pain, a what it's like to see red. What it is like is not something that can be captured in the language of physics, chemistry, or neuroscience. What that shows is that consciousness is Different. not physical, but it doesn't say anything about what contains consciousness. Okay. Now, a substance dualist is going to define the soul as an immaterial substance that contains consciousness and animates and makes the body living. And a substance dualist is going to go on and say that not only is consciousness different than the states of the brain, but that conscious mental states are contained in the I or the self or the ego, whereas the brain states that are going on are contained in the brain. So if I'm stuck by a pin, there will be C fibers firing in my brain, but there will be a feeling of pain in the self and they're in causal interaction with one another. If I choose to raise my arm, I can cause states to occur in my brain. If you uh, stick me with a pin, the brain state will cause a feeling of pain in, in the self. What do you do then with the neural correlates of consciousness, which many brain scientists are now uh, working on and are revealing more and more of? Well, suppose that I were in an automobile and I was trapped in the driver's seat with a seatbelt and I couldn't get out. Uh, my ability to drive around town would depend on whether the car was working. If the car broke down, I wouldn't be able to move. If that wouldn't prove I was the car, that would simply prove that I am functionally dependent upon the car when I'm in the car. So I think that neuroscientific correlations are exactly what the dualists would expect. I mean, after all, uh, dualists don't think that when you're praying or when you're thinking about something, your brain pops out of existence. There are things going on in your brain while things are going on in your mind. And there are very important and detailed correlations between the two, but correlation and identity does not make. Robert, the bottom line is this. Consciousness just isn't the same thing as physical states of the brain, because there are things true of one that aren't the other. And the self is not identical to the brain, because the self is a simple substance that isn't composed of parts. And these questions are not fundamentally scientific questions, they're philosophical. 
So JP asserts that the mind-body problem is philosophic, not scientific. And he's not embarrassed to defend dualism, a non-physical substance, a soul, which he says really exists. I'd love to see the soul exist, solve the mind-body problem, and pick up immortality as a kind of bonus. But if it's that simple and that important, why doesn't everyone get it? Marvin Minsky certainly doesn't get it. He's a pioneer of artificial intelligence and argues quite the opposite, that what we call the mind is entirely the output of the biological machine we call the brain. I asked Marvin whether computers can ever have conscious awareness and inner feelings as do humans. We meet in Marvin's famous lab at MIT. One thing we know about computers is it doesn't matter what they're made of as long as they have the same processes. So uh, once uh, some of my students made a machine that played tic-tac-toe out of sticks and spools and pieces of string. And uh, it played a perfect game of tic-tac-toe and that was fine and we could make a computer do the same thing. But if the parts are interrelated by the same functions, then the things should have the same behavior. But the fundamental question is, no matter how complicated you make your computer with even more parallel processes than the brain has, however long into the future, will that machine have the same internal experiences that a human being does? That's the key question. Well, of course it will, because experience is a process. And if you take a particular experience, if you knew how to describe the mental processes, what are their parts, how are they related, how does one uh, how does it go from one state or another? You would have described all the uh, details of that experience. What's the mystery? Well, there are many people who think that that is the great mystery. This is the core uh, piece of evidence okay. that shows there's something extra, some, some soul that we need to inject to make a human consciousness that you need to marry some sort of a non-physical thing with a physical thing. That sounds just plain silly, because how does a soul help? Unless you tell me what are a soul's part and how do they work, you haven't answered anything. All you've done is provided a word to keep you from thinking about the hard question, namely, how does, when I see something red, you could, some philosophers say, well, that's very mysterious because there's this redness uh, and we can't explain it. And there isn't any redness. There's a very complicated process that goes on in many different parts of the brain when you see red. It varies from one person to another. And it seems to me adding a soul to do that, that just sounds like an insult. Uh, I've got uh, 50 billion synapses and uh, 150 trillion. Uh, <laughs> The people who talk about a soul are just people who are too ignorant or unambitious or lazy or I don't know what insults to hurl at them <laughs> to say, this is a really hard question. Uh, it's all very well to say it can't be answered. You say, this is an unambitious, uh, faith-ridden person. <laughs> when you know that your science is too weak to make any progress, 
So you make this new thing, you could call it a god, and then you say it's rude to ask how God works. It's rude to ask what are the parts of the soul. To me, it's sort of like, suppose we had a primitive culture, if there is such a thing, and we brought it to the city, and we say, well, we're on the fifth floor, and you press the elevator button. And the, uh, this person, very sensible thing to do is to believe, well, there's something in the elevator button that's the essential essence of transportation. And that's what makes all this other stuff work. So how, how then uh, 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 can people y use the soul? And, and why do they keep coming back to it? I think when you don't know something, you can think about it. But sometimes you have an intuition that it's hopeless, that you're not smart enough, or there's no answer, or you'll never know because some hostile uh, spirit or force is going to keep you from this knowledge. And then it's good to invent a word like God or good or uh, whatever that saves you time from uh, thinking about it. To Marvin, thinking is a process without fundamental mystery. And as for a soul, well, that's just preposterous. If Marvin's right, I'd be sad. My mood is meaningless. Only reality counts. But here's where I go. Consciousness reaches deeper perhaps deeper than we can know. To Colin McGinn, an Oxford philosopher teaching in the US, the mind-body problem is a profound mystery. Colin is so passionate about the depth of this mystery, he is called a Mysterian. It's freezing when we meet in New York. So you're right in saying, according to me, consciousness is much more of a mystery than anything else. But that doesn't lead me to any position which postulates a purpose to the universe or anything of the kind. Because my explanation for why consciousness is so baffling to us is a resolutely naturalistic explanation. It, it arises from the fact that our own intelligence has evolved as an adaptation and has the kind of limits that any intelligence of any species on the planet has. So really what's surprising is that we can understand as much as we can about the universe. If we found that our intelligence could explain everything about the universe, irrespective of its adaptive advantage to us, that would actually be a count against theory of evolution, because that would be an anomaly in the, in the biological world. So surely the, 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 the rational position is that our intelligence is limited too, just like every other species. You've speculated that maybe consciousness has some relationship to what even happened before the Big Bang. Wouldn't that put consciousness on a totally different platform? It would, unless we have to revise our whole view of space. But on, on the face of it, it would, it would make consciousness a non-spatial thing. But a, a more inclusive position on this might be our very conception of space that we have is inadequate. And if we had a better conception of space, we would see that there was space before the Big Bang, not in the form in which we have it now, three dimensions that we can perceive and, and so on. 
however it might be structured, what, what strikes me is that if what consciousness is today has some special relationship to what was before the Big Bang then, yeah. it would seem that there is, if not a transcendent purpose of consciousness, certainly a differentiation with everything else that oh, exists. It, it might be so. It might be there's a very fundamental cleavage in reality between consciousness as a non-spatial thing and whatever was there before the Big Bang and the spatial world. But there are, there are other big cleavages, of course, in, in reality too. But there's big cleavages between uh, matter, as it's normally understood, and energy or energy fields. So it wouldn't be unprecedented if we had to suppose that the natural world as a whole was divided into the spatial now in the sense that we the objects around us are spatial and this quasi-spatial, or we call it non-spatial world in which consciousness and whatever else is out there might exist. So I, I think it's not something we should be uh, opposed to on principle that the, the world might divide itself up in these kinds of ways. Are intelligence limited? I don't believe it. Or I don't like it. I'm not sure which. Here's what's odd. All these distinguished philosophers, each with a different solution to the mind-body problem. Not just different, radically different. To some, our mind is just our brain. To others, we need a soul. To still others, we don't even need a brain. Any good machine could do. Finally, some say consciousness is such a mystery that it may remain forever so. Such divergence is not the way of science especially with increasing knowledge about the brain. What's going on? Perhaps this paradox is a type of clue. Perhaps the answer is of a different kind. The mind-body problem, ages old, perennially new, leads us closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and God, visit our website, closertotruth.com.